0: Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE. To 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California.
1: I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. Today we're going to learn about first episode psychosis, sometimes referred to as a first psychotic break. First episode psychosis, or FEP, is when a person begins to lose contact with reality and starts to experience delusions, hallucinations, and something called disorganized speech. I can't think of much that would be more terrifying to an individual and their loved ones than to directly experience or witness a first psychotic break. Dr. Michael Birnbaum, director of early treatment for teenagers and young adults at Zucker Hillside and Lenox Hill Hospital says, behavior can drastically change in a very scary way during first episode psychosis. People stop communicating in the same way. The way they use words and sentences to express what they're thinking becomes totally disorganized. But what does it mean to experience psychosis? According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, Psychosis is characterized as disruptions to a person's thoughts and perceptions that make it difficult for them to recognize what is real and what isn't. These disruptions are often experienced as seeing, hearing, feeling, smelling, and believing things that aren't real, or having strange, persistent thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. While everyone's experience is different, most say psychosis is frightening and confusing. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, writes on their website that psychosis involves hallucinations, delusions, and confused thinking, defined as follows. Hallucinations are things that a person hears, sees, smells, tastes, or feels that no one else does. In other words, experiencing things that are real to that person, but not to anyone else around them. The most common hallucinations involve hearing voices. Delusions are false beliefs that seem very real to the person experiencing them. The person may believe they're being spied on or that someone wants to hurt them or someone they love. A person may think, for example, that the CIA is tracking them and intends them harm. Confused thinking is a change in the way a person thinks. Thoughts may speed up or slow down significantly. The person might feel their thoughts are outside of their control. These thoughts might show up as disorganized speech, shifting rapidly from topic to topic without making a great deal of obvious sense. Psychosis is a symptom, not an illness in and of itself. As NAMI notes, it is also more common than most people realize. Roughly 100,000 young people experience psychosis every year in the United States, and as many as 3 in 100 will have a psychotic episode at some point in their life. The most common age for a person to experience first episode psychosis is between 15 and 25 years, those adolescent years that are already tumultuous. Identifying the signs of a first psychotic break and knowing what to do about it are absolutely key to a better long-term prognosis, but they're also commonly written off initially as a normal turmoil of adolescence. Today, we're very fortunate to have Katrina Flores, Senior Clinical Director and Director of Transition-Aged Youth Services for Mental Health America Los Angeles. Katrina specializes in working with a population we call transition-aged youth, namely those complicated years from 16 to 25. Further, MHALA is renowned for their work with the most displaced mentally ill adults in our community. In this setting, Katrina works very closely with youth who are experiencing first episode psychosis and all the complications that can accompany that. Welcome, Katrina. We're very happy to have you here today. And while you and I haven't met before, I do work very closely with Christina Miller, your CEO at Mental Health America. I have a great deal of respect for your agency and I have for a really long time. But for my benefit and the benefit of our listeners, will you please say a few words about yourself?
2: Sure. Um, I, as a senior clinical director, I actually began with the agency way back in 2002. That's when I was first introduced to MHLA and what they like to call, um, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, and it's really mm-hmm. been the foundation of all of my work in my career. Um, it um, What we did back then was called AB2034, which was housing first for homeless individuals. And that is when I was introduced to the village and this whole new way of thinking, recovery models, strain space, harm reduction. Um, And I just fell in love with it. And so I continued with that. And I think... You know, I, I made this comment when I was younger, and I said one day I'm going to work there. But then I didn't think anything of it, and um, now I'm coming up on 10 years of being with the agency. January 1st, I started as the assistant director for Tay, and just you know continued in my role and helped to uh, you know help to expand the programs that we're providing for our transition age youth, which is which is a very you know crucial population that we're working with at this time, especially you know right now in, the, in this day of age.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, I'm going to jump right in, um, from your experience, what is it like for a young person going through their first psychotic break, that first episode psychosis? I can't really imagine how scary that must be. Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely scary
2: and it's, um, Oftentimes what we have seen and what we hear from the students that we get to work with is that, you know, they feel somewhat lost and they're not exactly sure what's going on. Because with the way the world is now, the pressures of, you know, succeeding in school and, you know, just the classes they have to take, you know, um, just being an adolescent, being a teenager, there's a lot of stress just within that. You know, and then you add possibly home stress that they're dealing with Um, and then outside world stress. You know, um, we're not even talking about what that is like for students that I, you know, that are individuals of color or that come from different groups that are marginalized. And so um, it's it can be very scary, but it can also be you can feel very lost is what what we hear a lot Um, and not knowing who to necessarily trust.
1: Uh, for our listeners, because I know MHA LA so well, I know what you mean when you say students, yes. but I think that would be a different term than what our yes. listeners are probably used to. So could you define for them, please, what you mean by students? Absolutely. Um,
2: so... Students is another is another um, term for what most folks know as clients. Um, back in the late eighties, mid eighties to late eighties, that was that was part of this recovery model and culture, um, and really seeing the individual for who they are and not their diagnosis. Um, and so, uh, for all of our programs, we either call them students or members, um, and it it's kind of, it's not as clinical, it's not as sterile. You know, they, and for our age group that we're working with, they love the word, they love the term student because they feel like they are a student of their own life. They're learning all of these, all of these different things that they may not have learned elsewhere. So, you know, independent living skills, finding their voice, um, learning who they are in the world. Um, And so student has been uh, um, a way in which we refer to the individuals that we serve.
1: That's very powerful. I like that very much. Um, So, you know, it's one thing for us to read sort of academically, read the definitions of what it means to be psychotic or to hallucinate or or be delusional. But it's another thing to hear sort of the real life stories of how these are manifested. Mm -hmm. Can you give us perhaps some examples of hallucinations in real life? Like what might a person experience who's having hallucinations?
2: Yeah, hallucinations can take various different forms. They can be tactile, they can be auditory, um, through smell, through sense, all of those things. You can feel like, you know, things are crawling on your skin, you can smell a particular smell. um, But the more common ones that we see are the visual and audio hallucinations. Um, and, And for the most part, People don't easily disclose those, especially, you know, our younger, our our folks on the younger end of um, the age range that we serve, Um, because you don't see it often, but we have seen it with Tay, especially come through our door, where there are positive hallucinations, where they're, you know, glorifying them, um, that they're this Mm -hmm. rapper, and they can do this, and they can do that, and so it boosts their self-esteem. You know, and we've seen that, but there's also this false sense of perception of self, and that's where we start to run into challenges or these grandiose ideas. Um, and then most of what we see, and I think you know, media and social media has used this in a negative way. People will see, you know, um, they'll see people that aren't there, they will hear voices that aren't there, they will hear voices that are telling them to do bad things to themselves or to others, and that's where it becomes very scary because they're so prominent um, that there's no way to turn it off or to turn it down. Um, Sometimes folks will use like uh, headsets and play music really loud but then we run into some physical health stuff of of blowing out your eardrums. Um, And so it can manifest in various different ways and one of the things that we've also seen is if there's trauma associated with psychosis, sometimes the psychosis and, and the hallucinations that they may have are also related to that trauma which then make it very difficult for an individual to sleep, to concentrate, to kind of do their day Daily
1: I did this um workshop once um early in my career. It was fascinating. They divided us up into um clients and uh hallucinations, and there was an instructor at the front of the class. I was one of the clients. So I, we were all sitting at a desk and the instructor was giving us instructions about how to draw something. It was a simple drawing. However, the whole time the hallucinations, each of us had a person behind us whispering things in our ear. Mm-hmm. You're horrible, you're going to die, you know whatever, like as hearing voices might be. And then as that was going on, we were trying to listen to the instructions and not a single one of us got the drawing correct, because it was so distracting and impossible to not listen to the voices in my head and listen instead to the teacher. So I imagine that is what um, people who are actively hallucinating might experience, like how hard to engage in the present life when you have all that going on in your head.
2: Absolutely. I mean, simple task of, you know, um, making a meal because sometimes there's paranoia. Sometimes the voices that they're hearing are like, no, they poison that. You shouldn't eat it. Um, so it, it, it makes it very difficult. And that's actually, I love that you brought that up because we try to do that with all of our staff. Um, our staff, most of them have some sort of personal experience or connection. And it's why we get into the field of social work. Sure. Um, but one of the things that has been um, probably the most significant impact on our staff in terms of understanding. Understanding the folks that we work with is doing the hearing voices where they will literally put on headsets and be given a list of tasks to complete. Um, there are times where they are wearing lenses, but then there's a little bit of like, um, Vaseline smudged on it because that is to give you the perception of like seeing certain, mm-hmm. um, shadows and things like that. Um, and it's, it's scary. Some of our staff have, you know, they're very insightful and have, had their aha moments and it allows them to have compassion and understanding
1: for our students in a way that they never knew that they could. All right, that makes perfect sense to me. And could you, uh, for our listeners, differentiate for us, please, the difference between like hallucinations. I think we've been kind of clear about that. It's like seeing, feeling, um, hearing things. What about delusions? How do those manifest in real life?
2: Um, those can manifest in different ways. Often, Oftentimes, people see it as paranoia. You know, um, I had, I had a, a student currently who's struggling with some delusions. Um, they believe that their mother is poisoning their food, um, and so they won't eat certain types of foods unless they watch it being unpackaged and open right in front of them, um, things like that. Or they believe that the water is being contaminated, or their phone is, um, you know, sending messages to Illuminati. And all these examples I'm giving you are real examples that our students have shared with us or that we've watched them go through.
1: And it's terrifying. I had a 16-year-old a client once um, who actually set his yard on fire because he believed that, uh, that he was being invaded and the fires were barriers so that... Yeah um, the invaders couldn't come in. And, and he genuinely believed that. I mean, it's, it's yeah. really hard for, I think most of us to really grasp, um, how terrifying that must be. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, these first psychotic breaks, though, they don't come on suddenly. Um, yeah. like one day there's nothing and the next day you're having a psychotic episode. Could you speak a little bit, please, to sort of the buildup or the warning signs?
2: Sure. Um, a lot of the warning signs, and this gets very tricky, especially for our adolescent population, because these are also very common in what you see a teenager going through. Um, so there's there's worry, there's constant worry or ruminating on particular things. But this is to the point where they can't necessarily walk away from it or distinguish it's it's they're solely focused on that um there may be a drop in grades or maybe their job performance um decreases um i think one of the ones that we see more often is the difficulty concentrating um or following through with certain tasks uh we've also seen impulsive high-risk behaviors as well um i think that's probably Such a as? big one like so what? it could be like unprotected sex with multiple partners um it could be um, soliciting um, sexual acts on social media especially that we saw a lot of that during COVID time Mm -hmm. um meeting up with random people that they don't know for substances or um, in exchange for sex um, or taking the car stealing mom and dad's car and driving to the point of 100 plus miles an hour and crashing it um, so what would
1: precipitate that? What would cause that impulsive behavior?
2: Well, I think it's, it's the racing thoughts that they may have. It, it may also be, you know, if there are some hallucinations where those voices are telling you, you could mm-hmm. do this, you, you could do this. It could also be where the, their, the voices are, um, you know, telling them to do bad things, or maybe they're trying to run away from their voices. Um, I had one guy who was struggling with voices telling them, you know, um, to hurt this person, to hurt certain people in their family. And they wanted to use their a particular hand. Um, they wanted to use a knife to use X, Y, and Z. He eventually took that knife and actually severed his, his, his whole hand. Wow. Um, so that he would not hurt the people around him. Wow. And it took him about a year and a half to have that very open conversation with us about what happened.
1: About um, why he did what he exactly. did.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, what other signs would there be? Definitely a decline in self care. And not like, oh, they just forget to shower, but this is to the point where they won't even walk into the shower. Um, they start to smell, but maybe they don't smell themselves. Um, they're not eating. Um, they have very inappropriate or extreme emotions so from one end to the other it just flips automatically and there's no particular reason why you could have just said hi to them how's your day and there's this extreme of emotions
1: so some of that obviously not on the extreme level but okay mood swings decline mm-hmm. in self care um isolating suspiciousness. Some of that sounds like adolescence. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we, like we have a lot of parents who listen for parents or clinicians who are listening or teachers. How do we distinguish between sort of the normative experience of adolescence and something we should be more concerned about?
2: I think when it's, when it's consistent for months at a time and it, doesn't go like this an up and down motion Mm -hmm. but it's constant you know decline in in these behaviors to the point where they're making certain decisions and behavior um that they that they have is they they're not caring about the consequences of those actions um and so you know there's some remorse but with teenagers that are going through regular adolescence the other part is you know parents paying attention to was there anything that happened prior to that was there like an incident at school was there an incident with their friends because sometimes those can trigger some of these behaviors but it doesn't last for long term um and it's it's again it's also the severity to the point where like that's not normal like moody attitude this is this is really bad um So the other thing we also need to add into that is substance use. Teenagers are experimenting with different substances and when you see somebody that is experiencing some, like the the first psychotic break, and marijuana is a go to thing for for youth right now, that exacerbates those symptoms tremendously to the point where they will go MIA for for days at a time because the symptoms have gotten so severe. Um, so it doesn't help with the anxiety. It doesn't minimize the, how loud the voices are.
1: It actually makes them worse. So they're. They're desperately looking for self-medication of some sort, but they are ironically um, making their symptoms and their illness worse.
2: Absolutely. And that, so I would, I would also, you know, pay attention if there is substance use, if there is alcohol use going on, because that may be a way for exactly what you said, for them to kind of, you know, minimize the, the, the symptoms that they're having. They're just trying to get some relief, but what they don't realize is that it's, it's making it worse. Yeah.
1: I mean, I say that to people all the time when, where I'm talking about the, you know, substance use and mental illness, like I can't imagine the desperation to make the voices stop. I think it, the path to, wanting to self-medicate is a fairly logical one, Um, maybe maladaptive perhaps, but I can understand how someone would get there for sure. Um, You know, my clinical expertise as a social worker has always been in treating trauma, specifically sexual abuse and or kidnapping. Mm -hmm. Um, And severe trauma can look quite a lot like psychosis sometimes when you're having those, you know, the re-experiencing, the flashbacks, Um, it it can uh, mimic psychosis. Uh, For our clinicians out there, how do we differentiate?
2: I think what we've come to find in the work that we've done is rapport and relationship building. Um, Because oftentimes when we start working with a student, all we see are the outside symptoms and they're not forthcoming or willing to talk about some of the trauma that they've experienced. Or when we look at culturally or generationally, many of them are taught, well, that was just part of life. Doesn't everybody go through that? And so it minimizes, and that's also a survival tool for them. And so I really feel like it's around rapport, relationship building and utilizing a team approach. If you have the ability to do that, you know, bringing in a psychiatrist, let's take a look at medication because with schizophrenia, there are medications that will help, definitely, but if it's trauma, they won't do anything mm. to that particular symptom itself, um, and then, you know, if if you're able to have not just the clinician, the psychiatrist work together, let's pull in, like, a case manager um, to kind of help with day-to-day stuff, and again, one of the things I think that has helped us tremendously in MHLA is the rapport and relationship building. That has helped us get very far in the work that we do with with our students um, there and I feel like especially if if students have been hospitalized they're immediately given a diagnosis without like you know any sort of further investigation or getting to know the individual sure. so that- when they come to us they already have that diagnosis and it's it's a matter of helping them reframe and and have a different perspective of yes this is my diagnosis but it's not all of who i am let's get to know you let's figure out you know what is really going on and it's um, a collaborative approach as well they're very much part of the treatment plan Um, it's not like this is what we are going to do and this is what you need to follow it's more of what what is working? what are some of the strengths that you have? How do we use that to help you move um, forward in your recovery?
1: I mean that makes such sense and it's so respectful. the way you differentiate is through the relationship and understanding the the client or the student and having that person sort of inform your mm-hmm. understanding of what's going on with them that 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 makes such good sense to me. Thank you for that but. Yeah. What are the factors that can, like, what causes this? With psychosis,
2: there's a lot of things. You can even have physical illnesses that bring it on. You know, a really high fever can bring on psychosis. Um, some psychosis is drug-induced, uh, depending on what kind of drugs. I remember I spent about a month or so in Alaska, and one of the biggest, uh um, substances out there was inhaling. Um, So inhalants were a big thing. And many of the individuals also had a dual diagnosis with schizophrenia or, you know, bipolar. And it really wasn't that because there was nothing in their childhood. There was nothing that led up to that other than the substance use. And so substance can induce a lot of um, a lot of the symptoms of psychosis. Um, And so again, it goes back to that rapport relationship. Let's take out the substances or let's lessen them. Do we then see an increase in, in um, symptoms. Uh, so it's it's all part of a continuum of care. It's all part of a process. You know, let's take these things out. But I also feel like for Tay age, it's also important to get parents involved to an extent um, because parents will see things if they're living with their parent. Parents will see things that we don't get to see. Um, And so helping parents understand what these symptoms look like. You know, how to manage, how to crisis manage, when do I call for help? Um, But then also um, allowing them to give you information of here's what we see really late at night, because that may not be given to us by the student themselves. So, Yeah, substances, physical illnesses, um, trauma. Absolutely. We worked with a member for years and had a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, but as it took us a significant amount of time to do EMDR trauma work until we started to see this really isn't schizophrenia. This Mm -hmm. was all trauma. It was complex trauma that she had experienced.
1: Uh, I know what it is, but our listeners may not. Could you explain EMDR?
2: Um. And I always stumble on the words. It's rapid eye desensitization movement. And I know I messed
1: up the acronym. <laughs> I think you got the, the order wrong, perhaps, but I'm with yeah. you. These things become words to us after a while, yes, don't they? Yes. And um, that's a treatment for trauma.
2: It's a treatment for trauma. It um, utilizes visual aids, um, uh, audio, um, and it it, it essentially walks you back into the trauma that you've experienced, but creates a safe environment. It creates um, social factors that you currently have, um, and it allows you to process to the point where instead of being at a 10 with that anxiety or the trauma and then lessons to a a point where you can tolerate and talk about it because you now are dealing with it as an adult and um, knowing that you're safe. We've done it a couple times with um, some of our, some of our students, but there was a lot of work that led up to be able to do that.
1: Sure. Of course. You know, I had a, a 13 year old once who we were wondering if he was, um, Developing psychosis or certainly symptoms of psychosis. He kept, he had olfactory hallucinations, which aren't very common, and he would um, smell marijuana where there wasn't any, and he would see the devil. And ultimately, what we determined was not that the devil was pot smoking, um, but that he was having seizures. He had a seizure disorder and the hallucinations precipitated a seizure. So once we controlled the seizures, they went away. Um, The hallucinations went away, which was just fascinating. I'd never seen anything like that before as a child clinician. But let's assume you have somebody who genuinely has a diagnosis of schizophrenia. What causes that?
2: Um, A lot of that is hereditary um, chemical imbalance in the brain. Um, and there's still a lot of research out there to determine, is there any sort of environmental factors that influence that or you know, kind of speed that along? Um, and it's still, it's still up in the air, but most of my work, and, and I could be off with this, but most of my work and what I've seen is um, family members having a diagnosis uh, and then it's, it's you know, happening with some of their, their kids as well. Sure.
1: I mean, we definitely see patterns within families, don't we? Is that all psychosis? Let's say someone presents with psychosis. Does that always mean a lifetime diagnosis? It would be devastating to get a first initial diagnosis of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder with psychotic features. That would be devastating. People immediately think a lifetime of disability. So, could you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, I feel like
2: for some for some folks it is um, devastating, and for others it they weep with tears of like, okay, we finally know what's going on Uh. and we now know how to treat it. So we've seen both ends um, uh, um, uh, of that. And I feel like one of the things that our agency as a whole does really well is meeting the individual where they're at. It's not about, you know, Okay, this is your diagnosis. Okay, this is this is how we're going to greet you. No, it's like, hey, let me get to know you. You know, what do you enjoy doing? You know, what brought you here? What goals do you have? And so we also took on this more of a macro level approach as well, because we can do this individual work and the recovery model is wonderful and it's helped a lot of people. But if the, the environment and the community in which you exist doesn't also shift, then sometimes that individual work, um, is difficult to continue or to maintain. And so we did, um, we were funded for an individual, I mean, for a macro level project where we did a lot of education around mental health. We did um, social media um, campaigns. And really it's about destigmatizing mental health and being able to talk about it. And I will say that, even though there's not a whole lot of positives coming out of you know our whole covid process that is one is that you know people started to openly talk more about mental health it we started to normalize it doing these campaigns, doing education, doing mental health first aid, um, working more in depth with schools around getting um, teachers trained, also getting peers trained so that they can help each other. Um, And so when you move in that direction of normalizing it, it's no longer, um, a lifetime diagnosis of doom and dread, it just becomes part of who you are. Now, can you move away from psychosis? Yes. If it's related to PTSD, you absolutely can. If it's related to a physical health issue, you absolutely can. If it's related to schizophrenia, it's a little bit harder to remove that diagnosis, but you are no longer your diagnosis. You are
1: you. And that diagnosis is just a part of you. It's a real reframe, isn't it? In a really important absolutely. way. You're not schizophrenic. You have schizophrenia, but you also have all these other things that make up who you are as an individual. I like that very much. So thank you. As reported by NAMI, early psychosis, also known as first episode psychosis, is frightening, confusing, and distressing for the person experiencing it and difficult for their family to understand. According to the Child Mind Institute, the most common cause of psychosis is a psychiatric disorder, schizophrenia, or less often, bipolar disorder or severe depression. Psychosis can occur episodically with these illnesses, severely undermining a young person's developing sense of self, along with school, work, and relationships. The impact can be devastating. At the same time, however, Child Mind Institute also reports that there's substantial good news in the treatment of psychosis. Evidence shows that treatment after the initial episode can dramatically reduce the number and intensity of future recurrences. In fact, NAMI, Child Mind Institute, the National Institute of Mental Health, and SAMHSA all agree that early treatment following a first psychotic break can decrease future psychotic episodes by as much as 50% and prevent much of the disability associated with a psychotic illness. We've all seen the devastating impact of serious mental illness in our communities. And right now it is so just tragically visible in the homeless living on our streets. Um, Talk to me, please, about, and I know we've touched on this, but talk to me about treatment options for a young person experiencing a first psychotic break. What do we do for them?
2: Um, Well, a lot of schools are working closely with um, community mental health agencies, even county mental health, um, for early intervention uh, programs that let's say an individual is struggling with all of those warning signs that we've already talked about, um, but there's, there's something else. There's just a little bit more there that's making it difficult for them to kind of pull themselves out of those areas. There are clinicians and programs within community orgs that will work with the schools to do an assessment um, and to um, figure out, is this just adolescents or is this a first psychotic break? Um, It's again, that's also um, a team approach as well. They have psychiatrists, clinicians and social workers on board to help with that. So then if it is a psychotic break, they can do a lot of education support with family and then they do some education support and even medication um, with the individual themselves. Now, if they can't go down that route, um, there's always, you know, um, there are Community, um, well, like Long Beach Mental Health would be a place for an individual to go. There's also um, children's um, programs within, um, within, various different primary care places kaiser being one of the biggest ones right now especially when many folks that are on medical are able to go to kaiser they have a mental health program for kids as well where they can get assessed one of the smart things that kaiser did was start to contract out to some smaller um, organizations for therapists for psychiatrists so if they can't handle the demand they're able to be funneled into these other projects Um, Every county has a program for children and for adults and for Tay. It may be called something different. Like ours is full service partnership. So that's the most intense level outpatient somebody can receive. But that project, if they don't qualify because maybe they haven't been hospitalized, you know, two, three, four times within a year, they're able to funnel them into other, pro- other programs that are within that county or within that area.
1: If you were to build from scratch, Uh, treatment program for these young people, what were, what are all the elements that you would make sure it included? Oh, um, I feel very blessed because I think we're building that now. Um, I think you are too, but just (laughs) recently.
2: Yeah. I mean, we started FSP with eight staff. Tay services had eight staff, we now have 50. And it's because we've expanded. We've seen the gaps, we've heard from the community. Um, Recently, we are now bringing on a substance abuse counselor. Um, We already have nurses, we have a psychiatrist built in team, we have clinicians, we have employment that we're adding in. Um, What I would like to see in terms of expanding that is to have a residential partnered with a hospital, but working with individuals in the way in which we do at Tay and M H A L A. Sometimes hospitals right now, when somebody needs to go in to kind of stabilize, it's get them to a point where they're okay and ship them out. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of work being done. So creating a, a hospital environment that allows you time to work with the, the individual. They don't want to take medication. Okay, let's talk about some of these other things. You know, how do we work through this? How do we work through that particular symptom? Um, and big picture, and Chris is gonna love this, I mm-hmm. would love to do adventure therapy. Um, I'd love to incorporate that. Prior to COVID, we did we took our students camping. We took them out to nature. And so this would be a whole branch of that where we would incorporate that into the clinical work, into independent living skills, into learning about themselves. But adventure therapy is amazing. Um, and so I think a residential, I don't know how I feel about that, but that would be ideal as well. I think if we had those three things, We'd be the cream of the crop program in the <laughs> you county. You would
1: be. I can yeah. tell you that I'm a big camper, hiker, trail runner, backpacker. So if you have an a, a adventure program, sign me up as a volunteer. <laughs> I will go do that with you. Um, how important is medication and why is compliance such an issue? Um,
2: there's, there's pros and cons. There's people on, the, on, on this side and that side. Medication can be important. But it's only important if the individual is on board with it. And I think that's what we do very differently. It's not some folks that come from like foster care or from children's mental health. They're used to not having a voice or a say in their recovery process. And we ask them, like, what would you like to do? Um, Medications help a tremendous amount, but we don't force them. Again, it goes back to that rapport and that relationship you have with the individual. And if they decide they want to get off medication, that's sometimes a hard pill for us to swallow as staff, but we're going to support them because the recovery model is built on four pillars, hope, empowerment, uh, meaningful role and self-responsibility. And through that, it's also about, you know, making mistakes, but learning from those those decisions that you make um, and having a mentor which is our PSC's personal service coordinators or a case managers is similar to to what that would be having them walk with them along in that process okay you made this choice let's lay everything out but you're still going to pick this okay let's see what happens and sometimes it doesn't work but then when they come to their own oh well maybe when I was taking this med it helped but what I didn't like about it is it made my body feel this way well let's talk to the psychiatrist they feel more empowered they feel more you know in control of their their life and their recovery sometimes it's very difficult to watch it's also parents have a very difficult time with that because they know what it's like and so we've created a program for for families you know to understand crisis intervention to understand boundaries to understand that they're adults and they're going to make these decisions whether we like it or not but how can you be supportive as they go along this process. Um, so medications are important, but it's also not, we don't require mandate you to be on medication. It's your choice.
1: You know, for, I think a lot of, uh, lay people, they might think, you know, just take your meds. Like it's just meds. If, you know, I'm diabetic, I take my insulin. I'm not, but I'm using that as an example. Take your insulin, your, you know, just take your meds. What, what is it about the meds that, um, makes it such an issue for some for some.
2: I think every individual is different. We had an individual where their voices, remember how I talked about some voices are positive and they boost their their self esteem. Well for this individual, their voices was their friend. It wasn't mm-hmm. a, a negative voice. And so th- when we started to give them medication, it helped to lessen the voices, but then they became depressed. They missed their that, friend. Exactly exactly so then it's like okay now we need to look at you know developing a social support you know and that's the route that we would take for others it it's when they're taking medication they feel numb they don't feel like themselves their creative thought process sometimes is stunted it's different for for everybody and it's not as easy as like just take a medication and i think the world that we live in we want people want to see individuals on medication so then they can handle them so then they fit into this box that has been created you know i feel like there needs to be more programs that understand that somebody has voices and hears what they are and create a safe space for them to explore that sometimes they don't need medication we can work with them to manage those voices but also help them to create a plan. If those voices get to the point where there's harm that you're you feel like you're gonna you're gonna you know get involved in harming someone else or harming yourself, then how do we ask for help when it gets to that point? Um, and there are some folks that because of the severity and the negative voices are hearing are so extreme, that's one where it's like, okay, maybe we really do need to look at medication as a more like mandated type thing. I had a, we had a, a, a student who was very um, h- hypersexual and that led to some inappropriate behavior with not just his mom, but also you know, a little kid in the community. And this was somebody we had regular contact with, medication, injection, and even with that, it still wasn't helping. And so at that point, that's when I feel like we have to take a different approach where there needs to be long-term hospitalization to help him stabilize and you know, try out different medications. Even when they're in the hospital, they still have a choice of whether or not to take medication, but at mm-hmm. least they're in an environment where they can't hurt anybody
1: else. Correct. We talked about how the hallucinations or delusions can be positive, but I think for many, they're they're pretty scary in nature. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I haven't heard many that weren't... Uh, persecutory in some way, although I know, you know, it's not my area of expertise as it is with yours. But given that, um, how hard is it to get these young clients to trust and engage with you? If they're, you know, they're perhaps hearing voices that you aren't to be trusted, or that you're the CIA, or that the meds are poison, or these other things that we know can be part of a sort of psychotic thought process? How, how hard is it to get them to engage it can be
2: extremely hard. Um, and so one of the things that I've taught my staff are the three C's, compassion, commitment, and consistency. The consistency, I feel like, is key. You know, keep planting that carrot. Keep having the conversations. But also kind of um, embedded in what you're doing out in the community. Like, don't even have conversation about, about mental health let's go get coffee let's go grab lunch oh you like photography let's go to this place and, and take some pictures you know getting to know that individual and when they present this opportunity where like you can see that they're struggling it's 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 an opportunity where you can then start talking about what's going on. Like I see that you're a little different, and they know by that point that you're interested in them as an individual, not just this this voice or or what's going on with them. Um, it takes time though. That's one of the things we also had to learn as staff is patience, um, and that's where rec- where harm reduction comes into place, acknowledging those small baby steps that have been made to get to a bigger accomplishment, um, because it, it, we live in a world where we need a immediate gratification and that doesn't happen with our members and so that medication piece or that trusting piece can take anywhere from
1: 6 months to 2 3 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, what would you say to parents to a parent whose child is experiencing a first episode experiencing first episode psychosis? What would you say to them? Um
2: that one is always hard because I don't ever think there's words that I any easier I, when we've worked with parents, it's as simple as giving them a hug and saying, I see you, and then creating a space to allow them to talk about whatever they need to. They need to vent. They need to yell. They need to do those things. That is really where we start, you know, um, and, and I think when they start talking about what they're struggling with or the fears that they have, validating that, um, but then also giving them very clear like here's what we can do to support you here's what we're not able to do and here's why um that has been really helpful some also just need some some psychoeducation on here is what's going on and to help them understand those things. Some of them need work around setting boundaries. Um, so every every family is different, but the first part prior to, to COVID was just being able to, to stand in front of somebody, receive a hug and a, you feel their shoulders drop, everything just feels different. And it's it's almost like they're allowed to finally breathe. They're finally allowed to exhale.
1: Don't you miss that? I miss that. The yes. ability to just give a parent a hug, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I miss absolutely. that a lot. You know, now to, to speak to the clinicians or perhaps the mental health administrators out there, what could we be doing better as a system, um, as mental health providers? Not every agency is equipped like yours. So what could we do better as a system to support these clients?
2: As a system, um, well, I mean, starting with the, the clinician themselves, I think really operating from a strengths-based perspective. You know, having a conversation about who they are, just their day in general, aside from like, okay, what symptoms are you experiencing? You know, what what um, what medication are you on? But really, truly getting to know them as a person, using their strengths, helping them reframe. And I think system-wide, what would be helpful is working with um, with hospitals to change the way in which they receive and um, support individuals coming in and coming out. Um, I don't think that's a very collaborative system between nonprofits, county mental health, and the different hospitals that are happening. Um, It's more of, you know, give them the shot, get them to a point where they're not experiencing any sort of, you know, negative symptoms and have them go on their way. And that's not helpful. It's a band-aid. Right. Um, And so also as a clinician and just as as an individual general, um, helping to normalize that, struggling with the mental health is okay. So that way folks don't feel so afraid to get help or feel so afraid to um, talk about what it is they're going through. And I think one of the other things is mental health first aid. First aid for like CPR and all of that is norm. Like everybody can get that. We need to start normalizing mental health first aid because it's not separate. You know, your mental health affects your physical health and vice versa.
1: Absolutely. I I could not agree with you more about that. Or um, that is definitely my two-pronged mission, provide the treatment, but then um, provide the supports in our communities, the first aid supports, the wellness supports um, that will make us all do better. Um, Could you share a success story with us? Absolutely. Um,
2: We have, Quite a few. We were just oh, talking about one this morning um, where this young lady who had come from severe trauma, PTSD, didn't have a, a psychosis diagnosis or a schizophrenia diagnosis. Um, but through her time with us, she actually was able to. She was in a DV situation, lived in a shelter. Mom didn't want anything to do with her. She had a young child. Um, Just going through so much, was in the hospital for self-harm, so many different things. And while she was enrolled with us, she also found out she had cancer. So she went through, yeah, she went through that. And she was, she was young, she was about 22, 23. Um, And we were just talking about it because through that work that she had done, working with the clinician, working with the psychiatrist around finding a medication to help with what she was struggling with, um, working with her PSE to learn independent living skills, how to, how to find her voice, assertive communication. She led an art class. She was an amazing artist. Mm. She led, led an art class with the students um, for about six months, and she brought in, like, here's the piece that we're going to do. We're going to do this. She was very positive and interacting, and even when she was struggling herself, working with her peers gave her that boost, gave her that confidence. Um, So that was one that we recently talked about, but one in terms of like, experiencing all the different forms of psychosis you know we had this young man who was living on the train tracks and he wore this mop on his head that looked like dreads and he believed he was jesus Um, he would collect bags of trash and he would wet them because that was a way to protect himself Um, he was enrolled in our program we would go visit him on the train tracks for months at a time and then finally he agreed to have a meal with us so we had a meal with him and then that led to hey why don't you come to the office we have a couple things happening he came to the office but he stayed outside and then just continuing to build that rapport he thought he was jesus he thought he could make the water part he also felt that we were the devil um, especially if you wore your hair in a certain way um not to trust that individual Um, and so after about a year of connecting with him and developing that rapport and relationship he we finally decided, OK, I'll see the psychiatrist. So we saw the psychiatrist, and we gradually eased in the medication. We did weekly med management. We tried one, and then we added two, and then we switched, and then we did this. He, when he graduated, he was with us for about three years. I told you we go camping and we went to a KOA because I'm like, there needs to be some kind of, you know, somebody close nearby if anything (laughs) happens. So we went to a KOA and that was his first time camping and he loved it. He, you know, he was born and raised in the city. So we went camping, but I think the moment that was just so heartwarming was that He was a peer that led his peers. And we went to go swimming because they had a pool there. And he's like, Katrina, can you record this? And so we taught him how to swim that day. We recorded it and he's like, can you send it to my mom? So I sent it to his mom and he was not living with his mom. His mom had that boundary, you cannot live with me. And if, if you want to live with me, you have to work on your mental health. And she was very, it was hard, but she maintained that boundary. She was, he was living with her. He still does to this day and he's mm-hmm. working full-time, but that moment where he was just swimming and he said, record it and send it to my mom. I did, I sent it to her and she watched it at her and I were talking and she was in tears. She was in tears, you know, but it took this approach of, that team bringing mom in, you know, and, and now to this day, we just um, heard from him. He is working full-time as a security guard, still living with mom, eventually wants to move out, but isn't ready yet. But he, he came so far from living on the, on the railroad tracks with the
1: mop on his head, thinking he was Jesus to now where he's currently at is amazing. That's amazing. That's a beautiful story. And yeah. when you talk about the, the time it took too, that definitely emphasizes, um, the, the element of patience, yeah. that it's not a quick fix.
2: No, um, you know, and he still struggles with some voices, but he's learned how to manage them mm-hmm. with the medication. And he's learned when he works too much and his body gets stressed out, the voices are a little bit, a little bit more. So he's realized, okay, I can't work this much, but you know, it's, so it, it never went
1: away, but he learned to manage it. And It became more than his diagnosis. That's beautiful. That's really wonderful. You know, I, you already kind of did this with this story, but every podcast episode, I end on a note of hope, um, because I think wrapped through all of mental health care is hope. Um, you work with a terribly difficult population. What gives you the hope to continue doing this work? Um.
2: I find hope in all that we do, even in the, the not so fun parts, the difficult parts, there's always light in the dark and, you know, working with the team that I get to work with, seeing them make the, these strides with their students and holding on to those small strides is what gives me hope. You know, hope is also renewed when we have new staff come in that have this eagerness and this this desire and this urge to want to drive. That inspires me and brings in a whole new, you know, a whole new foundation of hope of like, okay, we keep going. I don't have to carry this all by myself. The current staff don't have to carry it all by themselves.
1: We can carry this and continue it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. And I can hear throughout our entire conversation, Katrina, the affection and respect and just esteem you hold for the people that you serve and treat. And um, that's a beautiful thing. So uh, you definitely inspired me today. I I thank you so much for this conversation and just also for the incredible work that you do. Um, What a joy to get to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other.
0: In My Backyard is brought to you by the Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Tricia Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify,